Well, if you guys haven't noticed, Titus, you know, three chapters, it has kind of this progression from chapter 1 and then to chapter 2 to chapter 3. And what you find is that in Titus chapter 1, it it talks about this life in the church. And then chapter 2 is about this life in the home. And then chapter 3, our passage for today is about life in the world, life in society. So life in Chicago would be for us. And so what Paul does in this letter to Titus, he talks about, you know, the elders and uh, leadership in the church in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 talks about the older men and older women, the younger men and younger women, and how life in the home ought to look like uh, when it's, you know, marked by the grace of God. And and then in chapter 3, Paul talks about um, what life ought to look like in in the world, in society. See, Paul includes every circle of human influence, every point of human contact, so that in every place there is a living example of the Christian life. So that in every place there is an example, a living example of what it looks like when Jesus has transformed someone's life. You know, about a month and a half ago, I had the, um, the joy and the privilege, I've been waiting for a couple years now, to actually, uh, uh, to officially uh, introduce this game of golf, the game called golf, the best game in the world, this game of golf to my son, Benjamin, and I want to show you a picture of, of us on the golf range. This is about a month and a half ago, and you're going to notice that we're dressed alike, and you know, it's, I'm not really into that stuff, but, but uh, Benjamin, you know, when he goes golfing, he wants to wear the hat that daddy, you know, kind of, he wants to dress like that. Daddy, you know, so he kind of, he picks out his own clothes, right? And he, he picks out shorts and, and, and the color scheme that kind of looks like daddy. When we go to the course, he wants to swing like daddy. He'll ask me questions of how do you grip it? How do you do this? And how do you do that? And I began to realize that, you know, for Benjamin, I'm the only model. I am the living example of what golf is to him, of what a golfer ought to do. Like I am, I am it, at least for now. Right? And it was such a joy to me because, you know, for I think any father, being able to teach your son a sport when they're at an age where they can, like, run around and throw a ball or th- swing a club, it's just a good feeling. But for me, golf had a big impact in my, child- in my childhood, in my-, in my life. And so I was just overjoyed, you know. Tiger Woods started the, uh, golf at the age of three. Benjamin's four. So he has a lot of, a lot of work to make up. You know, he's about a year behind, but, but we'll-, we'll get to it. And, but I show this because I wish I was the first one to introduce this wonderful game of golf to my son, Benjamin, but actually someone beat me to the punch. And so this person that beat me to the punch was actually my father, uh, Benjamin's grandfather. And so there's another picture. This is actually, this is my dad teaching my son how to play the game of golf. And Benjamin is not four years old there. He's actually 20 months old. So Benjamin is, is our adopted son, and at 20 months, uh, our adoption became official. We, we brought him to our home, and that same week, we brought Benjamin home. My dad went out, uh, and, and, he, he's, and he's stingy with his money, but he went out, and he bought a plastic set of golf clubs for a 20-month-old. I didn't even know they had it, and he bought plastic golf balls, and he came home, and he's like, we need to start practicing right away. And so this is just my dad teaching my son how to play the game of golf, and so my dad has become a model and a living example for Benjamin as well, right? And I share this because this passage in Titus today makes us as believers, for those who are in the, the fellowship of God, those who have said that Christ is Lord of my life, that, that he, he is, um, that, I, that I have asked him to forgive me of my sins and I live my life for him. For, for us as believers, th- this passage today makes us ask the question, 
What kind of example are we in our day? In our church, in our home, in our society, you know, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, what kind of an example are we in our day? What are we modeling for the, the world around us? What are we modeling? What, do, what does the church model for Chicago? You ever wonder and, and ask yourself the question, you know, what do non-Christians think about Christians? You ever ask yourself that? What do non-Christians think about Christians? I know you and I, we probably don't lose a lot of sleep over that, but this guy named Paul who wrote this letter to Titus so that Titus can instruct the fellowship in Crete, Paul, he thought about it quite a bit. It was always, it was, it was on his mind, and I think because it actually mattered to God. What do non-Christians think about Christians? Because this passage is about how we live in society, being living examples of who Jesus is. And what happens when God touches someone's life here on earth? Recently, um, I, you know, because I just started golf uh, about six weeks ago, um, there was one, one time where I just kind of went out by myself just to get a good practice session in. And, uh, and so, um, you know, this is one of those times I just wanted a quiet session. I, I didn't bring Benjamin along with me. I wanted to go and just kind of get my swing um, you know, back into shape, and, and so I, I went out, and, and you know, and I wore these shorts, and uh, you know, uh, to the to the golf range, and, and you guys know, many of you guys know my, my story. My my story is that you know, I you know, 21 years ago, I became an amputee. I'm a I'm a left BKA, uh, a left below the knee amputee, and I was wearing these shorts, and so it's like super obvious that I have a prosthetic leg, but I didn't care. I needed a tan on my right leg, right? And so I I went out to the golf range, and uh, and I'm like, you know, no one's gonna bother me. It's, you know, golf is a quiet game it's supposed to be and no one you know you kind of mind your own business and your space so I went out to the range you know with these shorts throwing my prosthetic leg and and I'm just swinging about five minutes into practicing sure enough there's a guy that comes and you know by the way there were only actually two people on the golf range and one of them was me so that's a good start so I'm like this is awesome there's only two people on the golf range and I'm one of them so we, we get there it's about five minutes in sure enough this guy comes towards my way and he probably sees, you know, me in, with a prosthetic, and he probably has some questions to ask me. You know, because it's not every day you see a golfer on the range that has a prosthetic leg. And so he comes over to me, and he's asking me about, you know, my leg and how it works and how the golf game is. And just, you know, asking about how it happened, what happened to you. And so I began sharing my story. And to be honest, I was just trying to find a way to get this guy away from me because I'm here to just practice. I'm minding my own business, you know. I, I, I'm one of those, like, when I'm locked in the zone, I don't want anyone to, to bother me, right? And so I'm like, how do I, how do I kindly, lovingly, Christ, in a Christ-like way, you know, how can I love on this brother but yet also try to do my thing? And I just shared my stories, you know, made it really simple. And he was just, he was just so engaged. He, he was just like, man, you're just taking in every word that I'm saying. And he was just kind of like this, you know, and, and kind of hands me on his back and just listening to my story. And so after I'm done, I'm kind of expecting him just to go off and do his own thing and, you know, thinking he heard a pretty cool story. And sure enough, he goes, can I show you something? And I'm like, sure. And then he takes one of his hands away from his waist and he shows me his left hand, and his left hand has four missing fingers. This is, this is, this is the reason why I asked you, because I'm also an amputee. And, um, and he begins uh, showing me his, his hand and, and how, he, how he uses his grip and 
ways that he has to uh, swing the golf club. And, he, and so I began to ask him about his story. And by this point, guys, like, it, it's pretty rare that you're going to find two guys on the golf range and both of them were amputees. Like, that doesn't happen, all right? And so I'm like, this is a God moment. So golf became secondary. And, and this became, like, almost a God moment. I was locked and I said, what's your story, man? Like, what happened to you? He says in 1983, you know, he was a Chicago fire department um, fireman. And in uh, 1983, he was caught in an explosion, took off uh, four fingers off his left hand. And then uh, 10 years ago, he picked up the game of golf. And so uh, as he's sharing his story, man, I, 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 I was locked in. I mean, it totally shifted. We're just like, we're like blessing each other on the golf course, right? We're just showing each other our flaws and but blessing each other and encouraging each other. But as he's sharing his story, uh, you know, I can't repeat everything he said because Every other word had, had these filler words that, that, that I can't repeat in church because, uh, you know, it, it just won't bless you. Let me just say that, right? Uh, it, it, he, he used a lot of flashy language that I just probably should not say here uh, from the pulpit. And, and he, he was just, you know, telling his story. And then, and then you know, and then so he shares a story. And, and then so finally he goes, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And guys, to be honest, like usually that's, that's when the conversation ends. Like, that's when it's like, all right, time to go. Like, like I'm not even saying this like, like, this is probably what happens. Like, this is what happens, all right? This has happened on the airplane with me and where the, literally the passenger next to me won't talk to me for the, for the next three hours just because I'm a pastor or whatever they think about Christians. I don't know, but I said I'm a pastor because it's true. I'm not trying to make it, make it up. And then, and then he was so shocked. And, and he was so shocked, and usually, like, people would just walk away, and I was shocked that he didn't walk away. But he was shocked that I'm a pastor. He was actually more shocked that I'm a pastor than the fact that there's only two guys on the golf range, and we're both amputees. Like, I'm like, you're not shocked about that. You're more shocked that I'm a pastor. He's like, I can't believe you're a pastor. He's like, no way. And then you know what the next thing he says to me is? He says, I'm sorry. I said, why are you, I said, why are you sorry? And he said, well, I, I actually swore a lot. <laughs> he says, I'm sorry for swearing so much. And then he, and then he says, why didn't you stop me? As if, as if it was like my job, you know. Uh, and then he just said, I'm sorry. And I'm, he, he said it over and over and over again. And then I, I just thought to myself, why is he so sorry why is he so sorry? At the moment I told him that I'm a pastor, two thoughts came to mind. One is this, the thought that came to mind is that somehow he has this understanding that as a Christian, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a believer, that somehow I represented God, that I wasn't God, but I somehow represented God. I think that's pretty accurate. I think that sometimes non-Christians believe that truth more than Christians ought to believe that truth. That we actually represent another name. That we bear another image. Church, are you with me? And he actually had this belief that, that this guy, James, is not just an ordinary guy. That he represents, he bears the image of God. That he represents Christ. That he represents Jesus. He somehow understood that truth and that reality. But here's the second thing I think was going through his mind, that when he heard pastor, someone who represents God, a Christian, someone who bears the image of Christ, I think when he heard that, it, sadly enough, the first word that, that came to his mind was not grace. 
the first word that probably came to his mind was judgment. He, he, probably, he probably at that moment I told him I'm a pastor, he probably thought that I'm judging him right now for all the language that he used. And then so he said, why didn't you stop me? And I told him, I said, hey, man, um, I said, you know, I'm not interested in, in changing your language. I'm interested in God touching your life. And I said, when God touches your life, he'll take care of the language. And then you know what the next thing he said to me was? He said, man, you're like a regular person. It's kind of refreshing to be around non-Christians. You know, as a pastor that's always around the church, and it's, it's kind of funny. And uh, so, I, you know, I said, I don't know if I'm, like, regular, you know. Like, I don't know if I'm regular, but I'm definitely a person. You know, and I, to me, I just walked away just, you know, just thinking, like, I wonder what he thought about it. I wonder what he thinks about Christians, that, that he would just feel like he, he'd be judged by some of the words that he was saying. Right? It makes us think about what do non-Christians think about Christians. Paul, here in Titus chapter 3, he calls them and he tells Titus, Titus, remind the, the believers, remind the fellowship, remind the, um, those who have been touched by the grace of God, remind brothers and sisters there, remind them to, he says in verse 1, be ready for every good work. He, Paul wants Titus to teach the fellowship to, to live such good lives. Why? Because he wants them through their lives for other people in Crete, other people around the world, other people in Chicago to know who God is. So the goal of Paul uh, commanding us to live good lives and to be ready for every good work was not for good work's sake. It's not live good lives for good life's sake. It's that we live good lives for the benefit of all people, but also, more importantly, as it bears witness to what our God can do with us. So here's how Paul begins. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And he doesn't say which, that it depends on which party they belong to or how much success or failure they have. He just says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And then he says to be obedient. And he doesn't say only to those that, that are, are, are worthy of your obedience. He just says to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He says to speak evil of who? No one. No one. To speak evil of no one. You mean even the one that probably deserved that? Yes, even him, even her. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. There's, a, there's some important words there that emphasize things. It says to, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, right? To be courteous to all people. Paul wants Christians in Crete, and he wants Christians around the world. He wants Christians in every church. He wants Christians in Chicago to, to be devoted to every good work, to live good lives. And here's why. He doesn't say because you Christians are better people. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say because Christians are just more moral. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say because Christians are just born right and they just somehow have it all together. He doesn't say that at all because when you pass verse 1 and 2, you get to verse 3. And this is what Paul says. He says, for we ourselves, he includes himself, he includes Titus, he includes every person in the fellowship 
who has been marked by the grace of God, he says, we ourselves, listen to this, he says, we were once foolish. We didn't know any, and he's saying, we didn't know any better. I think we're all adults, and I think we can all look at that and say, you know, that's probably true. And then he goes on and says, we're disobedient, meaning we've been rebellious. We always want what we just want. We choose our path. We do what we want. No one tells me what to do. We become our own masters. He says that we're led astray on the wrong path. He says we're slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, you know, hated by others and hating one another. This is what he says in verse 3. Here's what verse 1 and 2 says. It's a command. It's a call. Here, here's how we ought to live. Here's the command. But here, verse 3 is the contrast. Here's the command, but here's the contrast. Here's where we ought to go, but here's where we were. And maybe here's where we are. And I think this is so important to to pause for a moment because it's easy, I think, to skip over verse 3. It's easy for us to say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I like verse 1 and 2. I'm all about that good life. I want to be courteous. I think, that's, I think that's good to be moral. I think that's positive energy or whatever language you use. I think that's good. But then when you read verse 3, you're like, I don't know if that's me, though. I don't think I'm verse 3. I don't think I'm foolish. I don't think I'm disobedient. I don't think I was ever a slave to different passions. I, I don't think I hated anyone. And you know, and I think this is so important not to skip over. Here's why. Because in verse 3, if you never see that's true, in verse 4, you'll never see that's good. Amen by myself. That's okay. Because the gospel is going to come in verse 4. If we don't understand where we were, we will never marvel at the wonder of what God did for us. It says, we were once foolish. We were once disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're passing our days in malice and envy. We hated others. And we were hated by others. This might be the hardest part to receive. This might be the hardest verse to receive for us today because you, you're, you're probably going to think to yourself that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I, have, I have a few flaws, but I don't think I'm, I'm that. Uh, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of working on some stuff, but I don't think I'm, I'm that. And here's the thing. If Paul's description of who we are is different from how we think of ourselves at times, then verse 4 will not be good news to us. See, most of us, if you haven't figured it out, most of us, we want to see ourselves better than we actually are. Right? We like to think of ourselves better than we actually are. You ever, you ever, had, like, you ever knew somebody sick and you're like trying to tell them, go to the doctor, and like, they're like, I'm good. You, you, you know those kinds of people, right? And if you don't, it's because that's you. That, that you're that person. Or the person, you ever try to get someone to go to the dentist? You ever, you ever try to get someone to get their car serviced? They're like, nah, it's cool. Like, bro, like oil's leaking out. Like, your tires are falling apart. Like, there, there's smoke coming out. Like, you need it. They're like, no, nah, I'm good. It's still, it's still good. Right? I, like, I think about my parents because, you know, my parents were immigrants from Korea. They grew up in, like, the 50s and 60s. I don't know if it's because they suffered a lot in their life. Like, everything is, like, not a problem. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Dad, you need to go to the doctor. Go to the dentist. Go check, the, go check your car. It's like, no, not a problem. Everything's good. Like, all your teeth are falling out. I just need two. You know what I mean? Like, what? Like, like for them, 
like, like it's no problem, like it's, there, it's just good. Like everything is just better than, you know, like they just want to think it's better than it actually is. Does that make sense? What Paul is doing in verse 3, he just lays it down for us. He's not beating around the bush. He's not trying to say, oh, he's not trying to pat you on the back. He's saying, this is your condition. This is our condition. This was our condition. We were once this, and we might even be that now. And he says, you got to see that because if you never see that and you never see that's true, in verse 4, you'll never see that's good. See, verse 4 is the best news. It's the good news in light of verse 3 from where we once were. I think about the analogy, the comparison of like a car. You guys remember when you first got your car, maybe you were in high school. For me, I was 16 years old, a junior in high school. I was probably one of the first few in my, my group of friends to have a car. And so I was excited. I didn't care, like, I didn't care, you know, if it was brand new. I, for me, it was in good condition. You know what I mean? Like, it got me from point A to point B. I just, I just took pride in the fact that I had a car. I wanted to take everybody into my car after school and just go for a ride. And that's, I volunteered to drop you off, you know, at your house. And, you know, it's just, like, so proud. Like, you didn't care what year it is. You didn't care about the gas mileage, or maybe you did, right? You're just happy that you got a car that took you from this place to that place. It's like a car you have, and, and you keep convincing yourself that it's actually better than you think it is. Right? Oh, it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's in good condition. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, I got a few dents. I got a few scratches. Yeah, my AC is not working, you know, it's okay. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I, you know, I have to do one of these for me. You know, you ever had these? Just me? Okay. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, you know, emit smog every now and then. It's all, it's all good. You know, we'll live. Right. And you're like, bro, your car is messed up right now. It's not, no, 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 it's good. See, if we were to compare our lives to a car, you know what it's like? Our car is not just broken here and there. It's a car that's wrecked. It's a car that's been totaled. It's the, it's the destruction of sin. It's the, it's the weight and the depravity of sin. It, it ruins you. It ruins me. It ruins us. And that totaled car has nowhere to go unless someone comes to rescue it. And what I mean by totaled is, is that it needs, everything needs to be made new. It's not just, hey, let's just fix here this part and let's just fix that part. It just needs a new tire. To be total means everything needs to be new. And the gospel announces that when Christ becomes Lord of our lives, everything, everything is made new. The old is gone and the new has come. Charles Spurgeon, he's the one that said that many of us too, uh, think too lightly of sin And that's why we think too lightly of our Savior. And so we need to understand the weight of verse 3 as we move into verse 4. Because if we don't understand our sin, then then I don't know if we'll ever marvel at our Savior. You think about who is the one that just adores Jesus. Who is the one that weeps with joy over Jesus. It's the one who has weeped over his sin but seen the rescue of God. Who is the one that cannot wait to praise. Who is the one that cannot wait to say, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday because I have a song in my mouth. I have a song in my heart. Who is that one? That's the one that understands verse 3 and also receives verse 4. 
the good news. Here's what verse 4 says. In light of our foolishness, our disobedience, being led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures and uh, uh, living our days in malice and envy, being hated by others and hating on others. Verse 4 says, but when, but when, this is the climax and the pivot of the, the kind of, this is where everything centers upon here, the gospel, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life man that'll preach that's good but when God see we were once but when God we were here but when God here's the command here's the contrast and here's Christ and when God appeared now we can live out the command but when God appeared He saved me from my contrast. He takes me to my command because of Christ. So in verse 1 and 2, you see the command. Verse 3, you see the contrast. And verse 4 to 7, you see Christ. And it's the work of Christ that enables the work of the Christian. It doesn't work the other way around. That's religion. Christianity does not begin with a command that leads us to Christ. Christianity begins with Christ that fulfills and enables the command. That's how Paul writes his letters. That's how Paul writes to you. That's how Paul writes to me. That's how Paul writes to us. He, he will lit, lay out a command. He will tell us in his letters what the Christians should do, but never without sharing what Christ has already done. He'll tell you, Christian, this is how you ought to live. But in light of what God has already done, this is important. So in the gospel, what we do comes out of what's already been done. That's good. That's good news. That what we do comes out of what's already been done. In the gospel, what the Christian does comes out of what Christ has done. You think about these qualities, you think about all these qualities that were mentioned throughout the series in Titus, you you think about the qualities in chapter 3 to to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work. Uh, I I don't think I I have to convince you very much to, 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 for us to know that this actually doesn't come natural to us. This is not in our nature, in our sin. This is not in our sinful nature to, to, to be kind and courteous to all people. I mean, I can do some people, but I don't think I could do all people. It's just not in our nature. It's not natural for us in our sin. And so the only way we can actually live this out is if we have a new nature given to us. So this is what Christ does for us, that when God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, and he pours out his Spirit upon us, and he gives us a new nature so that what was not natural can now become more natural. So that now we can do the very things that we're commanded to do, things that we could not do in our own strength, 
apart from Christ. It is Christ in me. It is the Christ in me and the work of God in me and through me that allows me to do what it calls me to do. Paul lays it out in verse 4 through 7 that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. He saved us. He washed us. He renewed us. He poured himself out on us. He justified us. He made us heirs with him. And he gave us this hope of eternal life. Paul wants us to know that we ought to live a good life and, and live a life of good works. But I don't think he wants you to make that the focus. I think the focus here is that there is a God work that enables the good work. Don't forget the God work. Don't forget the good news. Don't forget that while we were that totaled car, a wrecked car, we, were, we, we, were, we had nowhere to go. We couldn't move. We were, we were dead in our sin. Don't forget what Christ had done. John Piper is a you know, retired pastor and um, probably you know, one of the mo- more, most influential pastors of our day, uh, at least in the Western world. He, he, he says this in one of his opening sermons. He says, I've been walking with Christ over 50 years, and he says, I'm amazed that I'm still a Christian. Then he poses this question. He says, do you know how much power it took to keep John Piper a Christian? He says, do you know how much power it took to keep John Piper Christian? And after a long pause, his answer was, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. The same power that rose Christ from the dead. Friends, this spirit, his spirit, the Holy Spirit is not only with you, but is in you. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when you go out into, the, into society, when you go out into the world and you live lives like Titus 3 and you're living the good, quiet, winsome life, a life full of character, a life that adorns the gospel, a life that makes the gospel attractive, a, a life that makes people wonder and marvel and ask, how do you live like that? And what, what's the, what, 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 you know, what makes you live like that? When they ask that, the explanation is, it's God working in me. It's God's work that enables the good work. In verse 5, it says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. When you think about what did it take for God to appear, what did it take for God to save us, it just simply says that it was his goodness and his loving kindness. It was not our works of righteousness. It was based upon his mercy. In other words, it had nothing to do with my works, my efforts, my moral standards. It had nothing to do with my successes. It had everything to do with God himself. It was the disposition of God. It was the character of God. It was the love of God that brought him from heaven to earth. Had nothing to do with me. It wasn't this partnership. It wasn't 50-50. It wasn't even 80-20. It was 100% God and 0% me. I did all the sinning. God did all the saving. That's good news. That's good news. So Paul's trying to say, that God's grace compels us, that God's grace enables us, 
that God's grace energizes us, that God's grace spurs us on towards love and good deeds. And my friends, and maybe he, he Maybe you've been in church a long time. I, I pray and I hope that the story of the gospel would not be numb to you. I pray that when you hear about Jesus and the cross and how the Father sent his own son, his one and only son, I hope that your heart doesn't grow cold and, and, and numb. But I hope it moves you again and again. You know, my, my son, Benjamin, when he goes to bed, he's... Um, there's a lot of nights where he asks uh, mommy and daddy, he'll ask me and, and my wife, Steph, to read him a book. He's got a few favorite books. Uh, one of them is, is this book called Harry the Dirty Dog. You know, he thinks it's like this profound book. I, I give it like a C minus. It's like, it's all right, you know. And, but it's just about this dog that, that goes to the backyard, gets dirty, and, and then he, he just runs off into the wild, kind of, you know, gets lost and then gets more dirty. And then he comes back home and the owners can't even recognize their own dog because he's so dirty. And, but Benjamin, like, you know, he loves the story. He's always asking us to read it again and again. And I want to just confess to you, I've read this book so many times. I, I just needed you to pray for me, right? I, like, after reading it 35 times in, like, two days, I'm telling you, I am tired of this story. Amen. I, I am sick of this story. I am sick of Harry. Right? I, I, I don't want to know about Harry anymore. I'm tired of Harry the dog. I'm, I, I don't want to hear anything about this book ever again. But that's not Benjamin's response. You know what Ben's response is? He's after we've completed the book, you know what he says? First thing he says is, tell it again. Tell me again. Daddy, can you read it again? And you know what he does? If I read it again, he laughs at the very same part. He smiles at the very same part. And, and I'm like, you, you just heard this like five minutes ago. And he doesn't care. He will laugh again and again. He will smile again and again. And he loves it every time. Every time I read it, it moves him. He never gets sick of the story. And I thought, man, what a humble lesson to learn from a four-year-old that we, as we approach God, as we hear the story about how God the Father sent his only begotten son 2,000 years ago to live a perfect, sinless, holy life. They hung, up, hung him on the cross, not for, your, uh, not for his sin, but for your sin, for my sin, for the sins of the world. And he bore upon the weight and the sins of the world, and yet he was willing to take it for the love of God, uh, for the love of humanity. And, and they crucify him, and they put him in a grave, and three days later, the Spirit of God rose him back up. And Scripture says that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you will have the Spirit of God upon you. And God will richly pour out His Spirit upon you. And those in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. My prayer is that when you hear the gospel story, when you hear the story, that you will not be numb. But you would say, say it again. Tell me again. Because it's good news. Can I get an amen? It's the gospel. Paul brings us back to the gospel. And then in verse 8, he says, A saying is trustworthy, 
And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That those who have believed in God, and if you're not one who has believed in God, this is a wonderful invitation for you to believe in God. But those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He's saying, if you have believed in God, then devote yourselves to good works. And here's why. I think Paul's trying to get at this simple reality again that if you have believed in God when you live in the world you no longer just bear your name when you live in the world now you bear the name of the one who saved you you bear the one of the name who took you out of verse 3 and brought you to verse 1 and 2 he takes you from death to life and so it's no longer you that live but Christ lives in you so he's saying when you go out Paul is saying to Titus, remind the fellowship in Crete that when they are living in the world, when they're living amongst the people of Crete, that they bear the name of the one who saved them. That they bear the name of Jesus. Last week, I, uh, I got to go to this thing called a mobility clinic. And um, because I'm an amputee, you know, I actually uh, haven't ran in the last 21 years. And when I say I haven't ran, I'm not saying like I, I like jogged here and there. And I'm saying I never ran. <laughs> Right? The leg that I have right now doesn't allow me to jog or run. It allows me to walk and play golf, which are probably two more important things in life. But, uh, you know, um, I've just never been able to, uh, to run and to jog because of the leg that I have. Uh, recently, I got connected to a, a, a clinic here in Chicago, and they gave me this uh, test foot uh, that allows you to jog and allows you to do uh, some running. He wanted me to test it out, and then he signed me up for this mobility clinic. And so I said, you know, sure, let's, let's see what it's all about. And when I got there, it's basically 30, about 30 or so amputees uh, different, um, with different conditions, missing arms, missing legs, below the knee, above the knee, uh, you know, one side, bilateral, all, you know, all kinds of stories and conditions. And, uh, and so... You know, everyone kind of had their own unique kind of foot, you know, walking feet, running feet. And uh, there was a guy that I met. He, he, it looks like he just graduated high school not too recently and, uh, or recently. And, uh, and, and uh, he tells me that he used to be a track star, but he got into an accident. He lost his leg. And so he's been uh, in, in this prosthetic. He actually had uh, what's called a running blade. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it's a prosthetic leg that just looks like a, it's like a shape of a C or a J. And, and what it does is, is when you put weight on it, uh, it actually, at toe off, it springs you forward. And so it's a, it's a running blade is what it is. And so we were, like, you know, working out together, running together. And it felt really good. I never thought running, like, I never thought I would enjoy running, right? But I'm not talking about, like, I'm talking about, like, half mile, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I'm one of those guys. Do you remember in high school, like, every Wednesday you had to run a mile? Do you remember those days? I was the guy that, you know, you would have to run four times around the track. Uh, to be a mile, I would run one lap, hide behind the tree, wait for others to run three more, and then go back. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you never sinned in your life, right? Um, and so that was me, like I hated running, but it just, but you know, it's, it's funny how like when something's taken away from you, like, you know, you start to, you, you know, you, you realize like what you're missing. And, and uh, I just, being out jogging just felt so good. And so he, he's one of the guys that I was jogging with and got to talk to. And I looked at his leg, I looked at his prosthetic you know, his, his running blade, and I noticed something. On his running blade, at the top of his foot, was a, was a Nike Swish logo. I thought, oh, that's so cool, man. Because mine, mine doesn't have that. Mine says, like, be careful, walk slowly, you know. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I don't know what mine says. 
it definitely doesn't have Nike or, or Adidas, you know. It's just, it's just a walking foot. And I, so I started asking, man, did you do that yourself? He's like, no, 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 this prosthetic uh, is actually um, was made in partnership with Nike. And so they actually sponsor a lot of these events and, and things like that and amputees and um, and so, so he, got this, he got this prosthetic where Nike actually imprinted their logo on his leg so that, so that when he runs, and anyone who sees him running, they don't just see him, but they see Nike. I was like, I was jealous. I was like, man, I wish I had Nike on mine, right? I'd be so proud to, to say that I'm a Nike ambassador. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that feel nice, guys, right? I, I just like I, I just thought, man, that'd be that'd be so cool if I can say that I'm an ambassador, right? A global ambassador, right? And so this guy literally just by having that logo on his foot, whenever he runs in a weird way, Nike gets the glory. Because when you look at him, you think, man, Nike backs him up. Nike supports him. Nike enables him. Nike empowers him. Nike is the one that allows him to run. Nike saved him. And I thought, man, that's so cool. I wish I was an ambassador. And I began to realize as I studied Titus chapter 3 that I am. I may not be a Nike ambassador. My foot doesn't say Nike. But for every believer, when, you, when, you, when we look into your heart, for, the life, for, the, for those who are in Christ, when we look into your heart, it may not say Nike, but it should say saved by the grace of God. Because I was once dead and I could not run spiritually. I was once dead and I could not live abundantly. But God, but God saved me. But God empowered me. God enabled me. And God lives in me. And now when I run, physically and spiritually, people don't just see me. They see the one who saved me. Church, I want to let you know today that you may not feel like an ambassador. But when God saves you, he bears his image upon you. And you bear the name of Jesus. You bear the one who saved you. So that when you go out, it's not just you. It's the image and the name of Jesus that goes out with you. You, the church, we are the global ambassadors of God. Because on our hearts, it says, saved by the grace of God. That's good news. That means wherever I go, whatever I do, I bear the name that saved me with every person I meet, with every person I work with, with every neighbor I live by, with every conversation I have, with every word I say, I bear the name that saved me, and it's the name of Jesus. And you might be sitting there and thinking to yourself, I don't feel like an ambassador. I don't feel worthy to carry the name of Jesus. I don't feel worthy to be a global ambassador of God. And I'm telling you, that's exactly my point. Because if, you, if it was based on you, it would not be called grace. It's based on God. That's why they call it grace. And it's this grace, it's God's work that enables the good work. All this to say, don't forget to live good lives when we go out. When you're in the workplace, when you're in the neighborhood, when you're out golfing, when you're playing ball, don't forget to be ready for every good work. Why? Because remember where we once were, church. I remember what God did. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As I close, I want to just read you um, uh, Eugene Peterson in in the the Message Bible. I just want to read you his paraphrase of Titus 3, our passage for today, and I pray that it will land um, as God desires it to land, and it will hit you in the way that God desires for it to speak. It says, remind the people to respect the government and be law-abiding. Always be ready to lend a helping hand. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands and going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God... Our kind and loving Savior God, when He stepped in, He saved us from all of that. It was all His doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with Him and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. Would you bow your heads with me?